Thank you, Pastor Laura, for leading us in prayer and uh, sharing the word with us. Um, I want to uh, introduce you to a very, very, very good friend of mine. His name is Tigger. He is, as you know, he's from the Hundred Acre Wood. He hangs out with Pooh and Eeyore and Rabbit and those other inhabitants of the Hundred Acre Wood. And he's uh, graciously agreed to join us today because I have a little thing I want to share with him. Are you okay with that? Okay. So, Tigger, look. You know what this is? This is called a plexor or plexa, depending on how you want to pronounce it. Yeah, this is what physicians use to check your reflexes when you go to see them. They tap you on the knee and see if your leg jerks out to make sure that your reflexes are intact. So what I'd like to do, if it's okay with you, is check your reflexes. Do you mind? Okay, I completely understand that. Tigger says that for HIPAA reasons, you shouldn't be able to see me actually perform this diagnostic assessment on him. So he's going to go down here where you can't quite see, and I'm just going to check his reflexes. Really good, Tig. Oh, yeah, your outstanding reflexes. You know what? We're going to talk a little bit about... Well, no, Pastor Lord did not hit me in the head. That's not why I have that little mark there. I scratched myself one morning. If that's what I say. All right. Well, thanks. Anyway, I appreciate you stopping by. We're going to talk a little bit more about reflexes. Do you mind going back to the green room and hanging out there and watching us on the monitor? Great. Well, thanks so much, Tigger. Tigger is a very wise Tigger. As you know, he's very full of energy and we love to have him hanging out with us all the time. Well, you know, right? You've been to the physician's office. They use that little mallet, that little hammer thing, that little plexer to check your reflexes. And uh, one of the things it does, of course, is help the physician determine whether the reflexes are exactly what they should be. And so I think that notion about reflex is a notion that can help us, particularly in these days, but really more generally as we live what we call this Christian life. Because what happens when some kind of crisis hits, what is our first reflex? What's our first reaction? Does panic set in? Does fretting set in? Does anxiety set in? What is our first and normal reflex, our, our built-in, if you will, our built-in reaction to trouble that comes our way? Sometimes we scramble when circumstances hit, and then we decide, oh, well, maybe we should pray about this thing. But that is not the Bible way. The Bible calls us to be intentional and intensive in prayer on a systematic, regular base, basis so that when circumstances of difficulty hit us, we can pray in the moment based on that backdrop of prayer in which we have engaged all along. I'm going to ask, uh, I'm going to have us look in the book of Nehemiah this morning. I don't know what page it's on in the Bible that's in front of you, but if you're on the website, you can go to the right of the picture and find that Bible translation column and find Nehemiah chapter 1. And I'm going to read down through verse 11 of chapter 1. It's a bit of a hefty read, but just bear with me because the context is important here. So again, Nehemiah chapter 1, I'm going to start with verse 1. The words of Nehemiah son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, 
Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. You've got to understand the context of the nation of Israel's history at this point in time. They had been taken into captivity, and there is just a remnant that was left in Jerusalem, which was the capital city. They, those who had come back, said to said to Nineveh, excuse me, said to Nehemiah, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, this is Nehemiah speaking again, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws that you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. Now, just to note before we get too far here, uh, there's a lot of praying, a lot of action, a lot of important things going on here. But I want you to see that Nehemiah's primary concern as he enters into this time of prayer is not with necessarily the state of the city of Jerusalem, though he is worried about that. He is more concerned about the state, the welfare, if you will, of the people of Israel who are having to operate and live in those circumstances. So Let's just launch in then. The first thing to note, and we talked about this a little bit last week, was in verse 3. Nehemiah sees things as they really are, not as he would like them to be, and not as they were in the past. Nehemiah's readiness to hear the truth is essential to understanding the way he approaches God in prayer and the way he approaches the problem that's in front of him, the safekeeping, the well-being of his people. Listen, of all the people on the planet... God's people should be the most clear-eyed about the way things are. You see, Solomon's temple in all its glory was not even consideration, just really the walls of the city to protect the people of the nation of Israel. We've all been there, right? Gone to some place that we used to know and maybe love and have lived and found out it's just not the way it used to be. Truly, things are rarely the way they used to be, even when we delude ourselves into thinking they are. I can remember taking Pastor Laura on a drive through the city of Holyoke, Massachusetts, which used to be the paper capital of the world. Now, I know you're wondering, what is paper? It's the stuff people used to write on. So I took her through that city because I had lived there for a substantial portion of my growing up years. And we got to place after place after place. And those places were either not there anymore or they were ruins or a shell of what they used to be. And so I wound up saying, well, that's where it used to be whatever. And that's where this used to be. And that's where that used to be as we toured through the city. 
And sometimes we're like that, right? We have this image in our heads of the way things used to be. But Nehemiah models clear-headedness to us. He models clear-eyed thinking to us. He sees things the way they are. And that's what kind of sets up his approach to praying. And look, look what he does in terms of his praying. The first thing, verse 4, he invests some time. He sat and wept for some days. We don't know, you know, precisely when he checked his watch to start those days, but he wasn't just a fly-by-the-seat-of-his-pants experience. He expressed in his prayer time those things that the Apostle Paul calls in the book of Romans, uh, groanings that words cannot express. You may have been there, right? A situation is so perplexed you or so overwhelmed you that you have struggle to know what to say in the middle of that, even in your prayers to God. And yet the Bible promises us that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us and translates those moanings and groanings for the Lord. And note, though, that that heartbreaking sadness over the conditions for Nehemiah's people does not preclude him from seeing the situation, from seeing the situation as it is. Then, verse 5, he acknowledges the one to whom he prays. And this is not just lip service. He uses the word awesome. Now, in our culture, in our day and time, the word awesome has been downgraded to this minor adjective. Oh, that's awesome. Trust me, ice cream is not awesome. It's great. It's delicious, but it's not awesome, at least not in the biblical sense. Awesome here means, and it has at its root in the original languages of the Bible, reverent fear. And this is a genuine sense of the true power and amazing wonderful array of attributes that God is and has. And then in verse 6, he confesses. Now, this may step on some toes a little bit. I'm sorry about that this morning. But here's what's interesting to me about this confession. He doesn't just come to God and say, oh, yes, Lord, those people over there, they are sinners and they're terrible and you should have mercy on them. No, that is not what Nehemiah does. He doesn't exclude himself or members of his own family in this confession of sins. He's right there in the middle of it saying, Lord, I know that I have not been the person you have called me to be in the middle of this tough time. You see, a true sense of the awesomeness of God reveals the depths of our own sinfulness. And it reveals how far we fall short of the glory of God again as Paul puts it in the book of Romans. We can see this a couple other places in the scripture. Luke chapter 5, verse 8. Peter, after Jesus has arranged for this big catch of fish, Peter says to Jesus, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. The book of Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah describes himself this way. He describes himself as a man of unclean lips. So let's look at this confession a little bit of Nehemiah's. He talks about unfaithfulness. He talks about acting wickedly. He talks about not obeying the commands. He is reminding himself and the people uh, around him, excuse me, the people on behalf of whom he is praying, he is reminding that there has been a departure from the expectations that God has for his people. And then in verse 8, Nehemiah turns this a little bit and he, he, he focuses on the truth of God's word. I think this is interesting. I hope you do too, because here is a, there's a relationship. It's a reminder that there's a relationship between obedience and blessing. Now, this is not name it and claim it. Oh, Lord, give me a million dollars in my bank account tomorrow. You know, that's not this presumption 
on God's graciousness. But there is a connection between obedience and blessing. I can remember um, when I was pastoring in Colorado, a couple of the teenagers in the youth group came to me and they were talking about wanting to engage in some behavior, which was, you know, not necessarily over the edge, but was going to be close. And what was worse was they, they knew they were going to be in the company of people who would invite them to step over the edge. And I said to them, ladies, man, you know what? You don't stay in the, in the, in the place where God has you and wants you to be by dancing close to the edge of the cliff. You stay where God wants you to be by stepping back from the cliff and being reminded from the word of God exactly who God would have us to be. So Nehemiah is kneeling before God, standing before God with integrity and saying that he's given it the best shot that he can with God's, of course, enabling and empowerment. I was reminded, I was overhearing Pastor Laura and the in the Bible study class this morning, and they were talking about this notion of sin and what God sees when he sees us. And what he sees when he sees us is the forgiveness that's ours in Christ. But on a day-to-day basis, we have to hold on to it. We have to own that forgiveness, which means owning the ways that we've fallen short. And only after DMI has done all of that, does he bring a prayer request to the Lord, right? This is where we usually start first. What are our requests and praises today? This is where we start first. But this is last for Nehemiah. And what does he do? He prays for success in his encounter with the king. Nehemiah's entire enterprise, the request to the king, is going to rest on this foundation of prayer. Now, in chapter 2, we realize that Nehemiah is not any less sad about the condition of the people, but he has now been prepared by prayer to go into the presence of the king and lay this kind of bold request before them. I'm just going to read a couple of verses from the second chapter of the book of Nehemiah. So in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I, Nehemiah, was very much afraid. But I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it that you want? Here it is. Here it is in verse four. Then I prayed to the God of heaven. I call these kind of prayers, those arrow prayers that we shoot off in the moment of trouble or difficulty. But this arrow prayer comes from a quiver full of arrows that have been established by that foundation of extensive commitment to God in prayer that he's already undertaken. And so he asked the king, if it pleases the king and your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. That's his request. He wants to go and make his people safe again. Interestingly, by the way, at least interesting to me, and I know I say that a lot, but really, uh, as the cupbearer to the king, if you were a member of the king's court, you were required to have a cheerful expression on your face at all times, a wondrous physiognomy that the king would look at and not be distracted by your particular personal problems while he was focusing on ruling the kingdom. So that's why Nehemiah's sadness is particularly important. So this kind of praying that Nehemiah does, to me, uh, this praying that he does, it kind of reflects, in my view, 
what a healthy church should look like and what a healthy personal relationship with the Lord should look like because we pray for wisdom in difficult days. But we don't launch those prayers in the second or the moment of difficulty. No, we shoot those arrow prayers off based on this foundation, this solid foundation of extensive commitment to the Lord in prayer. Apostle Paul, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 2, says this, We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. A Christian author named Vance Havner wrote years ago, way back in the 20th century, he wrote this, The thermometer of a church is its prayer meeting. And man, he's on to something there. So, let's say you're about to take a big... Uh, a car trip somewhere, some more fun destination. You're going to visit family. You're going to go someplace and have a good time or whatever. I know that's less likely in these particular days, but still think about it. You've done it. You're going to do it. You get in the car. You're going to take the trip and you're taking along a friend of yours who hasn't traveled with you before and the friend hops in the front seat and you're in the driver's seat and you get ready to go. You turn the car on and your friend looks over and says, um, your gas tank, it says like, it's like hovering just above E. It's like on that eighth of a tank marker there. Are we going to gas up? And you look at your friend and you say, that's silly. Why would we gas up now? We'll gas up when we get there. Well, of course, you're not going to get there, right? At about 10 miles in, somewhere down the road, depending on the mileage your car gets, at about 10 miles in, somewhere down the road, the, the car is going to sputter and quit running. Why? There's no gas in the tank. You don't gas the car up after you get there. You gas the car up before you go. The same thing is absolutely true in our Christian life. We don't gas up after we get there. We don't pray up after we get there. We pray up before we go. Our spirits should be filled with tightly connected prayer before we hit the road that we call this life. And we also need rest stops of prayer along the way, right? So you take those trips in your car and you know that you drive by those rest stops and some of you, I know some of you guys in particular, pride yourself on not step stopping unless you absolutely have to. And by absolutely have to, you mean a giant building has fallen out of the sky and blocks the highway in front of you. But the people who think about this in terms of our actual well-being say, you know what, you should probably stop every couple hours, stretch your legs a little bit, get a little fresh air. We don't do that. Worse still, we don't really live our Christian lives that way all the time. Instead of finding time with God on a regular basis, we keep running past the rest stops that he has intended for us. Now, I don't pretend to have the wisdom of the ages with respect to this COVID-19 experience that we're having now, but I know for sure that for many of us, a lot of us in a lot of different ways, our routine has been drastically disrupted. And we're finding ourselves with these times of blank space that used to be in our calendars that we had filled up with something else. Maybe now would be a good time to fill up some of those blank spaces in our calendars with some convincing, convicting, confessing prayer. I think it's essential that that we, we don't have any more what I call piddly prayer. We need power praying based on time invested with God. In the book of James chapter 5, James is reminding the 
the, the readers of his letter and us by extension, that they should be praying people. And he talks about Elijah. Now, I don't know how well acquainted you are with the Old Testament prophets, but Elijah, man, he was the dude. He was the big kahuna guy prophet. Uh, yes, I threw a little Polynesian word in there for you, if you can pick up on that. Anyway, he was the people they all pointed to when they thought about worthy and noteworthy prophets. And so we're talking about prayer when James does that. He describes Elijah like this. He says, Elijah was a man just like us. And yet when Elijah prayed, he had powerful effect. Why? Because, because not his own resume, but because he knew the God to whom he prayed. And he approached that God carefully. First Kings chapter 18 is a little simple example of this. You can look at it in your Bibles, First Kings chapter 18, verses 36 and 37. You can look at it on the website. Here's how this prayer pattern goes. Watch this. You are God. We acknowledge God's power and his rule. I am your servant. We acknowledge our place before God. At your command, we live our lives in obedient response to the Lord. Answer me. This is an expectant attitude. Last thing, so that these people will know that you are God. Not for my personal satisfaction or personal aggrandizement, but for, for at the end of the day, whatever we do, letting people know, pointing people in the direction of the one and only true God. You may have heard of Dallas Seminary. It's in, well, Dallas, Texas. And it's in, early, in its early days, again, way back in the 20th century, Dallas Seminary was in critical need of $10,000 to keep the work going. During a prayer meeting, a renowned Bible teacher whose name is Harry Ironside, again, I commend him to you and his works to you. He was a lecturer at the school. He prayed this, Lord, you own the cattle on a thousand hills. Please sell some of those cattle to help us meet this need. Well, shortly after the prayer meeting, a check for $10,000 arrived at the school. It had been sent days earlier by a friend of the seminary who had no idea of the urgent need or of Ironside's particular prayer. The man simply said in a note that accompanied the money that he had sold some of his cattle and he thought he would send along an offering to the school. That's praying humbly and with expectation. Nehemiah relies on God's sovereign purposes for the way ahead. The way ahead. It was clear, of course, that Nehemiah has this construction project for the betterment of God's people, but it's primarily God's people Nehemiah has in mind, not his own agenda. And I have to share with you as we move forward in these days and we begin to think together about what reopening the church building might look like and 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 how we might manage that. We have some interesting times in front of us. Times when we could easily go off the rails. Times when we could generate intra-church, uh, intra-relational conflict over our personal preferences. Whatever we do next should be characterized by the way we should have approached things before, which is that none of what we do as a church family is about our own preferences. What we do about, as a church family reflects two things loving the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, 
and loving our neighbors as ourselves. So the question in the days ahead is not what do I prefer? The question in the days ahead is what is best for our neighbors? We can easily go off the rails in our personal lives and in the life of our church, our life together as a church, or, or we could be people of earnest prayer and seek God's face like Nehemiah did. Listen for God's voice and follow his lead as the Spirit empowers us as believers in Jesus. Can we act on this? Can we become a powerfully praying people such that when we wield the plexer, the spiritual one, no, Tigger, Pastor Lord did not hit me in the forehead. When we wield the spiritual plexer and we check our spiritual resources, that when our reflexes kick in, we're praying. No matter what's going on, we're praying. Let's pray now. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this reminder from the word, reminder from the book of Nehemiah that you are so invested in conversation with us and you just want to hear us be in earnest, regular conversation with you so that we have a solid foundation of prayer from which we can shoot those arrow prayers when circumstances require us. Lord, make us a praying church. Make me a praying pastor. Make us a praying people such that we can discern your will for the days ahead. We pray in the name of Jesus, the name above all names. Amen.